and welcome to Writing in Faith, a podcast about the Christian and writing life. I'm your host, Daniel Dynek, and this week we're going to be looking at the wisdom of God and of the world, and what we should expect from each. For writers, we're going to be talking about the promises you make to your readers. You may not realize you're making them, but readers can tell when you don't fulfill them. We'll also be talking about how to subvert those promises in a satisfying way if that's what you need to do. Lots to discuss here, so let's get started. Changing it up a little bit this week again, but not in the actual podcast. Instead, in my beverage life, I ran out of Earl Grey tea, and so I picked up some rooibos tea when I was in South Africa last summer, and we haven't drunk that much of it yet. So I made some of that tonight. I'm enjoying that as a way to keep my vocal cords tuned up. Rooibos is an interesting tea. For the update, what I've been doing lately, what I started doing today, it's going to take into at least tomorrow to do, though, is... I do what I call common searches. And what I mean by that is I go in and sometimes if you try to type or if, you know, if I'm typing along, going full speed, and I try to write the pronoun her, that I can actually do H-E space R and then the next word in line. And autocorrect will only get rid of the R that inadvertently attached to the next word. And so then it still says he or it was supposed to be she but I did, you know, the previous word and then S and then space and then he, and it'll leave the he, strike the S off of the previous word and go on. And so I have a list of words that if you take their pronouns, most of them, that if you take the letter off the beginning or the end, it's still a word. And so I search for he, her, him, when it's supposed to be them, hey, because it's supposed to be they, and I think one or two other ones. And I go chapter by chapter and search for each thing, which means like the hem, the hay, here. Um, I check for here in case it's supposed to be there because I've ran into that a couple times. Those tend to go pretty quickly because I don't really talk about the hem of anything very, very often. A character might say hey, but it's once in a chapter, if that. A couple times in a book, maybe. It's when I get to the he and she. Trying to slog through the first to forgive with the female protagonist and search every chapter for every time it says she... And now going through the one known with a male protagonist and every time it says he takes a good long while. But this is something that reading some of the opinions and views on indie publishing out there, I probably don't need to worry about it because it seems like a lot of people don't, they don't judge indie books based on their spelling and grammar. But this is a personal thing for me that I do want it to read like it has been professionally edited. And so I go to this level where I'm going to spend a couple hours going through every single chapter, searching for these things to make sure they're not misspelled inadvertently and fix them and do all this stuff. It doesn't mean they're all going to, you know, I'm going to find everything. Things are still going to slip through, but I do, I do pay a lot of attention to these stories trying to get that stuff done. You know, this is the seamy underbelly sometimes of writing, especially if you're doing everything yourself. I could just pay an editor to try to do it, but I don't have that kind of money right now. So I'm doing it myself. It's just something that I'm kind of passionate about, I guess. Something that I feel like I want to do, and so I do it. Again, you know, I want these updates to not just be about what I got done this week, but also just kind of giving you a little behind the scenes in the writing life. And that's definitely, around this time of, around this season, this is a big thing for me to do. As I'm getting a book ready to publish, I'm going over it and over it, getting the formatting down, trying to get all the errors out that I can everything bound up in a nice neat little package and ready for you guys so be looking forward to that so that's what's been going on this week without anything further 
let's go ahead and get into today's devotion. So we're going to be looking at a couple passages today in order to get an idea of the difference between God's wisdom and the wisdom of the world, arriving hopefully at a key conclusion and a presupposition or assumption, I guess, that I believe we should take with us everywhere we go and revisit it for everything we hear and consider. Our first passage is one probably familiar to you if you've been a Christian for a while, and even non-Christians may have seen this pop up in various places. It's from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, which say, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. Or some translations say, he will direct your paths. I'll admit I like the second translation better, because even looking back on the times that God did guide me through certain seasons of life, the paths oftentimes look far from straight. We could say that that was my own sinfulness taking me off track, and there's probably a certain element of that as well. But also I think God takes us to and through certain things first to build our experience and trust in his goodness. And sometimes that means we go left before we go right. But that's an aside. So the first thing I want to look at about this verse and what it's encouraging us to do is that I can promise you that in an age of information and humanism, an age of postmodernism and the idea that your perception is your reality, the idea of forsaking your own understanding is going to be perceived as the absolute worst thing that you could do. And teaching that concept to others could only possibly be for the sake of gaining power for yourself. And we should admit that there is a certain amount of danger here, right? If we're in a position of teaching others what the Bible says, and we have them in a mode of submission to us, if they take what we say at our word and live it out, there is a tremendous amount of power in that. And I believe this is why James says in James chapter 3, verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And we can even look at Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, especially verse 15 when he says, You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. This should be a stern warning to all teachers in the church to make sure that their teaching and wisdom is from God and not from themselves. Then, back in our Matthew chapter, in verse 25, Jesus says, You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. And in this verse, he's talking about making the person look good because of how they act. Focusing on getting people to obey the law, even though inside they still only think of themselves. And this is the power that non-believers think pastors and teachers hold over a congregation. That of getting them to act without thinking, without criticizing what's being said to see if it's true. And it results oftentimes in a hypocritical people who harshly judge others when they themselves are still wicked. And it's because of that focus on the law instead of on Christ in us, which in the end is still most often a result of relying on our own wisdom instead of on God. We choose our interpretation of scripture, which commands are most important and how people should follow them, and instead of allowing God to guide us through a loving and nurturing relationship with another believer or non-believer. So we assume that all people everywhere need to act a certain way, and if they would only act this or that way, the world would be a better place. This is the lore, the siren song, of the law. If we just legislated it, made certain acts illegal or legal, everything would work out better. But remember what we looked at just a couple weeks ago, that Paul said the law came to give an opportunity for sin to tempt us away from what was right and true. And only by grace are we truly set free from sin and free of our obligation to do what the flesh desires and given a new obligation to obey the spirit made new in Christ. That was in Romans chapter 7 and 8 if you want to read it again. But for the sake of time and our topic, I won't do that now. 
This too runs counter to the world's wisdom that laws matter actually really very little. Now for the non-believer, law is indeed critical and sometimes we miss this too. But remember Jesus told us the two most important laws from the Old Testament are to love God and love our neighbor. Everything else the law might tell us is carried out in these two directions of love. But we also shouldn't miss this in light of that knowledge. By far the best thing Christians can do to change the world is to bring people to Christ, not to make more and more laws. Law may be a temporary stopgap, but should never be the final goal. Law affects only the here and now. Christ changes eternity. We should do both, don't get me wrong, but we also need to do both, never forsaking one or the other. Now let's remind ourselves of what scripture says about God's wisdom and thoughts versus the world's with what may be another couple of familiar passages. Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9 tells us, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God created us and the world. He knows how we work, how the world works, far, far better than we do. Jesus reminds us that the very hairs of our heads are numbered, and not one of us at any given time knows that, unless maybe we're completely bald. But the God who knows that, and the God who knows when a single sparrow falls to the ground, has almost infinitely more knowledge of what's going on in us and in the world than we could ever possibly know, even with the vast amounts of information available to us today. What does the news tell us if we watch it? Lately, mostly politics and COVID-19. Local news might tell us a house somewhere had burned down or someone was murdered. Not that those aren't important, especially for those whose lives are affected by it, but it's nearly meaningless to the rest of us who was arrested for suspicion of whatever crime. What I do today for God's kingdom doesn't change because a country has confirmed another some hundred cases of coronavirus. It won't change my prayers because I'm already praying for them. It won't change whether I write my book today or whether I continue to prepare for my job that I will start eventually, whether it's the one I'm scheduled to start in May or it's a different one that God has prepared in advance for me to do. The only thing that will change what I do today is any wisdom I receive from God in those prayer times. Our ways are often lost in that constant media stream of almost exclusively fear and anxiety and death and destruction. God's ways see to the future and what we who are obedient to him are going to need to be ready to do tomorrow, next week, next year. We cannot see that far ahead, so it gives me great comfort to rest in the one who can. Our last and similar key verse comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18-25. through 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. I hope by now a key theme is coming to mind. We cannot trust the wisdom of the world simply because it falls short of the wisdom God provides. We're going to spend the rest of our time here with some thoughts and some examples. The first thought that I want to make clear is that the wisdom of the world, even if it cannot attain to the heights of God's wisdom, is still functional. In theological circles, this is the concept known as common grace, meaning God has equipped the world when he made it to function in part whether Christians are around or not, 
whether or not his spirit actually inhabits a body. So there is still wisdom outside Christianity and the Bible, even though it is still there only because God put it there. So there is no call in this understanding of wisdom to utterly forsake or go opposite what the world deems is wise. But we also need to remember this verse, words spoken by Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. I want here to focus on this idea that many enter through the gate and walk along the road that leads to destruction. From this principle, I personally come to understand that if an idea or concept seems right and wise to a large number of people, say, for instance, the world, then it does not attain to the level of the wisdom of God. Now, as I said, that does not mean the wisdom itself is inherently wrong, just incomplete. There are, for instance, a growing number of non-believers who are finally realizing that watching porn is bad. From what I've read, some of it is because of the conditions under which a lot of pornography is made, and demand, or watching it, continues the supply. Some of it is because of the objectification of women and men still inherent in porn, which is a focus more on what happens to those actually watching it. In this wisdom, we begin to grasp the destruction porn causes both to the one watching it and the ones creating it. So why is this bad? Well, it's not entirely. This is wisdom that is incomplete. For Christians, We stay away from such things because of the destruction to the idea of marriage, in which sex is an intimacy reserved for those in covenant relationship, and yes, because of the degradation of our value to those filmed or pictured. But we do also need to remember that this isn't about law. Keeping away from porn alone does not get us into God's kingdom. So if we make the vilification of porn only about the objectification and devaluation of people, we are still not saved. So yes, we need to help in the fight against rampant pornography and lust, that oftentimes even the most innocuous product is advertised by men's and women's bodies for no real apparent reason except to get our attention and give us good, if lascivious, memories associated with a certain car or toothbrush. But in every step of that fight, we need to keep in mind that unless people come to Christ, no amount of sex-free advertising will get viewers or producers into heaven. For me, a lot of my arguments against the wisdom of the world comes down to this. That the more wisdom and intelligence is perceived to be attainable by human effort alone, the more this world can be made a better place by human effort alone, the less people believe they need Jesus. And in light of eternity, that is perhaps the greatest foolishness of all. That's what most of the book of Ecclesiastes is about, by the way, so I recommend reading that one too in your studies of wisdom. That we might spend our entire lives wearying ourselves out on trying to make the world and society a better place, only to end up in hell is dumb. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 19? If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. He says this in light of all the persecution that was happening and in light of all we're asked to sacrifice. You can read that in verses 31 and 32. Basically saying if we do all this work and undergo all this suffering only to end up in the ground forever, food for worms, that sucks. That's from the new message translation, by the way. Just kidding. But we should also take this caution from Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Don't be foolish. Get to know God and Christ, which is pretty much the same thing. Don't run the race and fall short. Paul's concern from 1 Corinthians 9 verse 27. And as soon as something seems wise to the world, even if it agrees in most aspects to a Christian principle, don't assume that it is accurate or complete. 
God's thoughts are always, always higher than ours. All we can do through Christ and the Holy Spirit is to let our paths be directed in that wisdom. Now, there's a couple key elements from everything we just talked about that we writers can learn from. And probably the easiest is the idea that God in his wisdom made a way for Jews and Gentiles or non-Jews to get into heaven through Christ. When we read the Gospels, we see that there were a lot of promises that the Pharisees knew about the coming Messiah, but they still had their minds set on the things of earth and thought the Messiah would deliver the land of Israel, Israel as a civic unit with geographical boundaries, not that he would deliver us from a far greater enemy, the devil. When it was Jesus who came, rather than allowing their expectations to be flipped, they rejected him. This is not what we want for our readers. One advantage we have that God did not is that it shouldn't take 400 years for people to read our books. Only Pat Rothfuss and George R. R. Martin are flirting with that disaster. So we have a much shorter time span to make our promises to the reader and fulfill them, which means less time for their memories to wander and to start making false assumptions. Once again, much of what I talk about today I learned from Brandon Sanderson, so there will be a link in the description to his new 2020 lectures at BYU, which are obviously still being updated, as well as the link to his 2016 lectures. Check those out for a ton of good story writing lessons. Sanderson talks in two of his lectures about promises, progress, and payoff, which are really three elements that all point to the same thing. Any and every book starts making promises as soon as you see it. The author name, if you're familiar with their work, promises another story similar to what you've read, at least in genre and writing style. The cover promises a certain type of story within. The back jacket blurb makes a more detailed promise of the kind of story you're about to read, with specific ideas of the setting, characters, and plot. And the first pages promise the tone, feel, and even more of what's to come, as we mentioned in our talk on story structure, that the hook and first chapter should give you some questions that you expect to see answered. Making these promises are not necessarily an easy thing to get right. Even Sanderson mentions that after 25 years in the business, he sometimes inadvertently promises things he didn't intend to. This, again, is why beta readers or a critique group is so important. Tone may be the easiest promise to get right. Just remember that if the content of your book is scary or dark, you don't start the first chapter with a whimsical scene unless you weave in some sense that this whimsy is only a veneer over much darker themes to come. For this, I think of the movie Hot Fuzz, where the tone of the narrator and the events on screen are comedic, but there is still the hand-stabbing shot. This, and the dark and gothic feel of the scenes when Sergeant Angel arrives in Sanford, makes it a little less jarring when the first murders occur and are as gruesome as they are. I don't know about you though, but the scene of the murder at the church fate, to me, is still much more shockingly grisly than the rest. Even after all the times I've watched it, I feel like that particular level of gore is not promised by the rest of the film. The ubiquitous fantasy prologue, when done right, is another way to promise things that the first chapter or several chapters cannot. The polarizing effect of prologues, where people seem to either be okay with them or hate them with a passion or refuse to read them, is in large part because of how many people simply have one, just because it seems or seemed the thing to do. Prologues, rather, can be useful for promising a tone that the first chapter otherwise cannot provide, or to prevent boring backstory and info dumping by nesting the important information in an actual scene. But if those two elements can be accomplished well during the course of the normal narrative, you don't need a prologue and you probably shouldn't have one. Some other promises that we've already touched on in previous episodes include the promise of what the story is about. Again, it should be easier to pin this one down. The key here is to not include so much character building and world building that we lose sight of the story itself. This is a danger probably for panthers especially, who oftentimes like to throw a couple characters together and see what happens. If this is your method, one easy fix is to have them meet outside of the story, just on a separate document. Imagine some other scene where they can interact and let it flow. 
But once you start writing chapter one, you'll need to get out of that mode at least a little, enough to keep focus on the story itself. And promises are not limited to the start of the story either. You'll continue to make them throughout the book. One interesting story Sanderson shared in his lectures was a particular series where the characters were trying to get from point A to point B, but ended up at point C. His beta readers hated it because their journey to point C always felt like a diversion, that they would still somehow eventually end up at B. This was one where he had inadvertently promised something he didn't intend. There are two ways to handle this, if you find yourself in the same situation. Go back and change the promise, which is probably the easiest, or change the fulfillment. Changing the fulfillment might be harder, but it might also be necessary for the story to work. Check first to make sure that where the characters are, or how the plot has changed, still fits the overall arc. For Sanderson, he was able to fix the promise. Back in the beginning when the characters were talking about trying to get to point B, one of them spoke up and said something along the lines of, I know you all think we need to get to B, but I'm pretty sure we're going to end up at C. And even though the other characters dismissed his ideas, the reader saw that as foreshadowing. So once the group did finally end up at C, it wasn't a surprise. Progress, too, is itself a promise. In most of my books up to this point, progress happens fairly rapidly. Events and destinations tick by in a pretty constant stream. Now that I'm almost doubling all my previous word counts with book four, though, physical progress is much, much slower. So right out of the gate, within the first few paragraphs, I spend a lot of time with Averland's thoughts and with world building. And at the end of the first chapter, 5,000 words in, time has progressed from early evening to night. Along with the promise of what is to come, this should signal to the reader a much more languorous tale than I've ever spun before. The key with doing something like this is there still needs to be movement, if not in a physical sense with characters going from place to place, Still, in an emotional or mental sense, your readers need to be learning and sympathizing and, most importantly, becoming more and more curious about your story. As long as there is a sense of progress of some sort, a sense that things are not going to stay the way they are, keeping their attention becomes easier and easier. Finally, we're looking at the payoff. If you've done the prep work of Promises and Progress well, this should be fairly easy. A couple of main things you want to consider, though. For younger audiences, middle grade and younger particularly, you probably don't want to have super twist endings. At that age, you're mostly looking for clean and happy endings. The older your audience, the more they'll want to be surprised. But a word of caution. Even twist endings need to be foreshadowed so your reader can look back over the story they've traveled so far and say, ah, that's why that happened back in chapter 5, or whatever. Surprising but inevitable is the phrase, and is obviously a lot harder to do than to say. There's another interesting quote that I like to bring up here from theater. It's talking about detail to a degree, but detail also has a lot to do with promises. The quote is, if there's a gun on the mantle in Act 1, it had better go off by Act 3. The idea is that you're not putting unnecessary details in your setting. The result of this, though, is that if you do have a gun on the mantle, you're promising your readers that it's going to go off by the end of the book. Now, you may ask yourself, how can it go off without being predictable? Well, there's two ways to go about this. First, you also have a sword, metaphorically speaking here, and the gun is a distraction. To do this well, both set pieces need to be visible to the reader. You can't hide the sword in a closet, never mention it, then whip it out at the end and say, aha, readers won't like that. But you can point out the gun, talk about it as a piece of family history, and mention wasn't there a sword that went with it? There was, not sure where it ended up, and go back to the gun. Now, even these days, that might be a little too obvious. Your readers are going to be looking for things like this. So you'll have to see what works for you. The point here is that both the distraction and the reality are presented to the reader, and they won't necessarily know which one is the most important. 
The other option with a gun on the mantelpiece, and probably the better one, is to have it serve some other important function. Important enough that as that function plays out, the reader will assume that is its only function. I was reminded recently of the movie Ocean's Eleven. The writers did a terrific job of recognizing the crew needed an escape plan, but never really solving how it was going to be done, at least on screen. But they did plenty of foreshadowing. If you think about it, they literally showed Ocean's crew building the set. But at the time, they presented it as only for the purpose of practicing, and most of us probably never gave it a second thought until the end. This is what you'll need to do in order to present a surprise ending, wowing your readers with the wisdom of your characters, and you too, by extension. That's all for this week. Hope you'll join me again next week as we look at Carpe Diem, seizing the day and the moment, as well as some thoughts on procrastination. Until then, keep the faith and keep writing. Thank you.